ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today we are talking about neon films again. In the last episode, I charted the history of neon and where they started and where they are today and how they managed to win a Best Picture Oscar only three years into the company's formation. And joining me as we talk about our favorite neon films is Royce Benson. Royce, you'll probably remember, he was on the Top 10 A24 episode, and he was also in the Life During Quarantine episode as well. Royce, I'm so excited to have you back because it's kind of similar to our A24 one where we get kind of just geek out about films. So, so thank you for doing this with me again. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to get into it. So we, we talked earlier, I guess it was probably late spring, early summer, you know, we were talking about what the, we've been watching, things like that. How, uh, how has anything changed for you? Have you been able to like catch up on, on some more stuff on your, your, your watch list or how's that been going? Um, it's been pretty up and down for the most part. Uh, I want to say I haven't been really watching a lot of TV. I've been trying to watch a lot of films more like, um, what I've been doing recently is like when a lot of directors or have been releasing newer films, I've been going back and catching up, catching up on films I haven't seen by them. For instance, like for a little bit, I was watching a bunch of Kaufman's films um, because he released I'm Thinking of Ending Things onto Netflix. And so I thought, oh, I've never seen any of his films. Let me go back and watch those first. And That's so good. I've been doing a little bit of that. I, I guess I'm kind of at that point right now where um, I'm kind of trying to make like more structured lists for like what I want to watch because there's like films that are on my priorities and then there's ones that aren't. So it's a, it's a little bit of a difficult balance, I think. But um, yeah, I've just been having a little bit of fun with it, you know, just kind of watching stuff I want to watch. And then I like stuff that's like on my watch list that's been there for a while. And then plus like new stuff that's coming out. So, that's cool. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Like, there'll be times where I'll be like, there, there's one specific film by a filmmaker or something where I'll be like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to watch this. But then I kind of feel like I need to augment that a little bit by checking out some other things. Even if I have other stuff I'd rather be watching, I'd be like, oh, you know, like, I got into to Akira Kurosawa a, a couple of years ago. I was like, I really want to see Seven Samurai. I've never seen Seven, Seven Samurai. That's like, every film nerd has to see that. So I was like, all right, I'm going to watch that which I loved it, fantastic movie. And then I'm like, all right, now I kind of feel like I need to watch a few more of his movies to like totally get his vibe. So like for the next little while, I was trying to crank out a couple Kurosawa films just so I can be able to be, have a, a better informed opinion and not just be like, oh yeah, Seven Samurai. Yeah, I've seen that, but nothing else. So I definitely understand what you're, what you're talking about where you want to have a bit more of a, a theme going on for what you're watching. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know, just you, you talking about Kurosawa, I actually, I've only seen Seven Samurai, so now you just talking about that makes me, I think I, I have to, might have to put that on my priority list, because I've been meaning to get his, for, to his films for a while, but it's tough cause I haven't like, done it yet. So. He's sort of like someone like Alfred Hitchcock, where he's probably got about like eight to ten stone cold classics, where, where like, you can say you've seen a couple, and they're like, yeah, but have you seen this one? It's like, uh, all right, yeah, all right, I'll watch that next. <laughs> You're not a real cinephile if you haven't seen. <laughs> oh, God, I, I wake up in night sweats with that thought. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have the Criterion copy of it? The, the bootleg version with the alternate commentary. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my god. But uh, but back on topic, you know, we're, we're talking about neon films. Uh, as I mentioned, the last week's episode was the history of neon, and and you know, I charted how they got their start and what their big releases throughout their history was. But I, you know, as usual, I sort of remove myself as far as my thoughts on these films in particular. And, you know, what better way than actually talk about this? So the way this works is uh, we each made a top five list, and there were no duplicates. So once a movie has been chosen, it cannot be chosen by the other person. That doesn't mean, you know, you can't appreciate or or like or or even love the different movies that are on the other person's list, but it just sort of makes it a little bit more interesting. That way we get to talk about ten different films. So let's get right into this, and uh, what's your number five movie? My name is Lily Coulson, and I'm 18 years old. These are my three best friends, M, Bex, and Sarah. And this is the story of how my town, Salem, lost its mind. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, My number five film for this list is Assassination Nation, which is a 2018 film directed by Sam Levinson. Uh, And the synopsis essentially reads, High school senior Lily and her group of friends live in a haze of texts, posts, selfies, and chats just like the rest of the world. So when an anonymous hacker starts posting details from the, uh, the private lives of everyone in their small town, the result is absolute madness, leaving Lily and her friends questioning whether they'll live through the night. Now, I, why it's, it barely just broke my list. When I originally watched the film, I actually didn't give it a rating at all because I was really conflicted about it. And I'm sure if you can talk about it a little bit later, it's, it is kind of a mess of a film in general. There's a lot of great ideas at play. Like there's like the concepts that are at play in the film are really interesting, but they're not always executed well. But you kind of have to give props to them for even like, I guess, pointing out those ideas in film. Um, like I see the film, it's mostly kind of as a satire about, I guess, the new Gen Z, uh, I guess communities like this newer generation is coming up, you know, living surrounded by, you know, constant um, interactions with each other. And what exactly would happen if, you know, everyone just literally snapped and went crazy. You know, we're seeing this today. I think, I think uh, even though it came out a couple of years ago, it's so applicable today when you're seeing, you know, these viral videos of insane violence taking place and we don't even really blink about it anymore. You know, we see these crazy things happen in our everyday lives. And it's so interconnected through social media. People have literal instant access. And it's terrifying because some of the the content is explicit, you know, and kids are even viewing it. But because it's so accessible through social media, because everyone has a device, it's so easy. And um, I think a lot of the ideas that were at play kind of in this film, I think he does, uh, Sam, the director, does a little bit better later on because now he's known for uh, Euphoria, which is a show that he... Uh, that he wrote the script for and directed for HBO that has a lot of critical acclaim. You know, it's gotten a couple, you know, awards. But I think what I like a lot about his, a lot about him as a director is his sense of style. He has this very intense way of which he depicts young people. It's very stylized and it's one of those cases where I think it could easily fall into like style over substance. Um, Just in the sense where there's a lot of like, more shots that are like, oh, that looks cool, but like, does it have meaning? And so I get where a lot of 
people when they initially saw this film, they were like, oh, there's just a lot of like violence and sex just for the sake of it. But I guess if you kind of take it from like a, more of like a satire, it makes a little bit more sense. So it might take a rewatch for me possibly to kind of um, have any definitive thoughts on it. But mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what you think about it personally. Yeah, it, this was a movie I, I watched when I saw that you were you were liking it, and so I, I checked it out just before we recorded. And I would call I would say this movie is a lot. You know, you're right about talking about mm-hmm. the, the satire of social media. That's a big thing. I think it also really does a, a interesting critique on things like cancel culture and the 24 hour news cycle that is you know been around now for 20 plus years now, where there's always a story, a breaking news story, and this is this sort of thing that's happening. And also, I think he does a great job of just sort of cramming a little bit of everything into it because I'm sure if, you know, we were to watch it again and, you know, you set aside the social media aspect and the cancel culture aspect, there's a whole lot of other things. This idea of what does it mean to be a feminist and and different aspects like that. So there's a whole lot of really interesting things going on. At the end of the day, I think maybe he has more ideas than he has time and ability to properly flesh out. I would almost mm-hmm. compare it to, I don't know if you saw the movie a couple of years ago, Sorry to Bother You with Lakeith Stanfield. Yes, I did, yeah. Really interesting movie, really crazy, mm-hmm. ridiculous ending, which I won't spoil for anyone that hasn't seen it. Great premise, but it's a similar sort of movie where Boots Riley, the director, sort of just threw everything into it every sort of critique you can make about society is in there whether it's you know uh class wage race sexuality everything going on in that he just slams it all in there for better or for worse and i sort of some you know assassination nation resembles that a little bit but maybe done through the lens of someone like nicholas winding referen who did uh drive and the neon demon and only god forgives where you got this like super stylized very clear vision very popping colors beautiful in your face violence and sexuality where it's just you know it's almost so beautiful where it's hard to define what is the sex and what is the violence because it's shot so elegantly with you know these gorgeous tracking shots and the camera swirling around upside down like there's this fantastic shot uh, where there's one of the girls standing on the American flag and like the camera's upside down and it's uh, dollying away from her and you're just like whoa what a what an incredible shot uh, but it's one of those things where yeah there's a lot going on in this movie yeah no honestly I really agree with a lot of different points you made and I did get an NWR vibe from watching it as well and yeah I also do really like your comparison to Sorry to Bother You because I think it kind of has a lot of similar flaws in that way. So I, I do like the d- direction a lot of these, you know, creators are taking by kind of making, getting this like controversial content mm-hmm. and kind of molding it into a creative, sometimes funny, sometimes really disturbing way. But hopefully uh, these are just kind of stepping stones for them that hopefully if they want to revisit some of the ideas, maybe later on in like a mini series or something like that, I think have a lot of potential. You know, as I don't know if you've seen Euphoria, but like, I can't say enough amazing things about that show. And just watching his progression from like that film to that show where he like really like, kind of like you were talking about, he really explores the ideas of like sexuality and drugs and adolescence. And he, and he kind of stretched it out to more of like a mini series. And you know, all those cool stylized shots were still there. It looks cool. You know, there were some really good beats. It had, but then it was also thematically like, 
you know, fantastic. Like the character arcs were great. You cared about each character. And so I really like what you're saying. There's that, there needs to be that balance between style Mm -hmm. and then it actually being like, not just shot, like it's like a music video, you know, Mm, It, it can look cool, but like have no, you know, that, which a lot of people are arguing, like, you know, Michael Bay does that. And so I think when you can find that balance, I think you're, I think that's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, at the end of the day, I would rather watch a movie like this, like Sorry to Bother You, where there's a little bit too much going on than a boring movie. Because in my opinion, mm-hmm. the, the cardinal sin of movie making is making a bad, boring movie. Sorry, not even bad, just boring movie. I would rather watch something that's interesting and bad than good but boring. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, there's a, there's a lot of movies I like that are just insanity. And it's like they're, they're sometimes not even really, like, well-made, but they're entertaining. Mm-hmm. And it's like I would rather much watch that than some, like, indie film where it's just like, that you know, they're, you know it's just like they're just talking, you know? So I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, sometimes films like this they're just even if you don't take a lot away from it it's you're still going to have a great time you you're not going to get like bored i guess (laughs) (laughs) all right so moving on to my number five pick uh i've got three identical strangers from 2018 directed by tim wardle in 1980 new york three young men who are all adopted meet each other and find out they're triplets who are separated at birth but their quest to find out why turns into a bizarre and sinister mystery I, I'm such a sucker for a, a good documentary that has a, an interesting hook to it. I'll watch pretty much any documentary, but like something like this where like it really catches your eye and they do a great job. I would compare it to something like Man on Wire where they have like the talking head interview, but they also do a little bit of recreation of the actual events. So I really like this sort of style. And you get this story where you get this one guy who's going off to college and everyone's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? Haven't seen you for a while. And he's like, what? I've never met you guys before. This is the first time I've been in this building. And then like someone's like, oh, my God, you are identical to this person. And then sure enough, they realize they meet and they're like, wow, this is an identical person. We're twins. They, they later find out. And then uh, they're, they're in the newspaper. And then some other guy's reading. I was like, oh, my God, how come my picture is there twice in the same photo? What's up with this? And so he meets up with them in their triplets. And then from there, like, I, this is another one where, like, you don't really want to spoil. But, like, the story just keeps getting crazier and crazier when you find out why they were separated, why they were never – their adopted parents were never told about the other ones and all this sort of stuff where it's just, like – it seems like every scene you get such a revelation that blows your mind where that could be the entire premise of the movie. But there's like 10, 15, 20 different crazy revelations that by the end of it, you're just like, how can this be real? But you know, they're on TV, they're in the newspapers, you know, they're like, there is actual footage of all this stuff happening that it can't be made up. Yeah, no, I think you, I think you're so right. And what I, I, this, even though it didn't make my list, I very much enjoyed it. And I think what this film really encouraged me to do was to watch a lot more documentaries because I've not nearly seen enough documentaries and there's plenty of great ones out there. And I think this one's really no different. Like it, it feels like a lot of the newer documentaries I've been seeing, this one included, they do very much have like a cinematic quality to them where it's like, uh, even how it's shot, it's never, it's never boring how it's intercut between, you know, like you were talking about like the dramatization Mm -hmm of uh of the real life events and then intercut with the different uh the different siblings 
and how those reveals kind of take place. I thought it was incredibly well done. And yeah, the story is absolutely insane. I, I really don't want to give away the ending because, you know, it floored me personally. But um, yeah, it's just one of those stories where it's like, it's so insane. It's, it's kind of that idea that uh, sometimes you, it's so crazy, you couldn't have written it. Like reality sometimes is stranger crazier than fiction. Than fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's definitely one of those films. Um, and yeah, it was a really amazing, heartwarming story. I I really loved it. I I'd encourage anyone to watch this film. Yeah, yeah, it's it's heartwarming, but at the same time, there there is a bit of a darkness to this, especially as the movie goes on, mm-hmm. and and you sort of realize like it's a little bit of a tough subject to sort of dance around. But there's you know someone important in this story that isn't giving their side, and we learn why later on why that's happening, because the whole time you're watching, you're like we're missing a perspective from someone what's going on here. And they, and they purposely, I guess, edit it around it to, to make that a bit of a reveal that happens later on because they're, they're telling the story chronologically. But yeah, just, you know, the, these triplets, their story is just so unbelievable that like, yeah, you, you said you, you, you can't believe it, but it's absolutely true because I like, I can't remember what it is, but like they're on like the Sally Jesse Raphael show or some other like daytime talk show that was, that was big in the eighties whatever it was. And so like you have this actual footage where they are able to incorporate it. And then you're, you know, they're also going through court records and, and, you know, bankers boxes filled with documents and reading original notes taken by the adoption agency. So like none of this stuff is fake. None of this is staged. This is all legitimate where they can, they show you the original documents And, and something like that is just like so baffling that such a thing could happen. And it's mostly lighthearted, but there is a real darkness to it that, that sort of makes you sort of question humanity as a whole. <laughs> uh, and then uh, just the last point I wanted to make about this, um, kind of like you pointed out, you know, there is darkness in the film, uh, in the documentary as they reveal later on. But what really creeped me out was, um, was that Austrian, um, she was that older lady mm. that was like a doctor. Yeah, the assistant. And whenever they had interviews yeah. with her and like how she was explaining stuff, I'm like, Lee's like a villain. She's so evil. <laughs> like, I, I was like, you can't make this up. This is crazy. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, you have such a hard time wrapping your mind around how something like this could even happen. But I don't know. Even though there was a lot of darkness, as you mentioned, I came away very optimistic about it. Um, and I thought it did a great job. I think it did it served the purpose that the filmmakers were going for. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, I think the sort of thesis of this documentary is uh, nature versus nurture and, and how we are raised as, as people and, and what sort of effects do we have. And it sort of, you know, uh, lays the groundwork for both are, are true. <laughs> All right. So what is your number four film, Royce? Uh, my number four, uh, my fourth film is the 2019 film, uh, Manos, directed by Alejandro Landes. And the synopsis reads, On a faraway mountaintop, eight teenage gorillas with guns watch over a hostage and a conscripted milk cow. Playing games and initiating cult-like rituals, the children run amok in the village, in the jungle, and disaster strikes when the hostage tries to escape. Now, when I was looking through um, on Hulu and I was scrolling down through a lot of the different, um, you know, because they have a, pretty large selection of Neon's catalog in there. I, I came upon it. I watched the trailer. I was like, this looks really intriguing and interesting. 
And I honestly wasn't that disappointed by the film when I watched it. Um, I never, I remember seeing the trailer randomly back when it came out a couple years ago, but I never really heard much about it after that. And from what I read, it's the director's, it looks like it's, I think it's their sophomore feature. I think, or I think their first film was a documentary, but essentially where it was, as the director was explaining in an interview, he was talking about how the, the film was essentially supposed to take place during uh, a six year uh, civil war that was happening in Colombia. And I forgot what time period it's supposed to be. And I think it was set during the modern era, uh, at least the real conflict. This one, this film's definitely set during uh, the modern era. But it's a really interesting premise where it's it's basically it's a very short, it's a pretty short film. It's you know less than two hours, but it's very um, it's a very suffocating film. You're, I kind of when I watched it, I got a lot of uh, Lord of the Flies vibes from it. You know. You don't really get any backstory on who these children are, who this captive is. You, you don't really know too much about them. It just, the film just kind of takes you there. And it's, they're just on this mountaintop above the clouds. Beautiful panning shots they do at the beginning. And you're kind of introduced to this world of these, you know, kids, you know, carrying or these minors, you know, teenagers carrying around like these assault rifles that are, that are as tall as them. And, you know, and acting like adolescents, you know, like, not being very mature, but yet there's still soldiers in this, you know, in this militia. And you, and you don't really know about which side of the conflict they're on. And that's not really important because it's really about the characters, not the politics that they're, you know, supporting or backing. Um, and I think that's what really serves to be a really um, an interesting look at at least child soldiers, especially in, in like the Colombian conflict. But, um, I guess I have to say, like, just in general about the film, it was, like I said, it's like a very nauseating film. It's how they, I don't even know how they shot a lot of those shots because they shoot, they go from the high mountains to these deep jungle areas. And so I'm sure, I'm sure like the shooting process was very complicated and it looked like it took a lot of work, but it's a gorgeously shot film. And yeah, I, it's, I, I would say it's, uh, it's a gem that's really been overlooked by a lot of people and I would recommend it to anyone really. Interesting. Yeah. This is the only one on your list that I haven't seen. So I, I can't comment or even really ask you much about it. But, uh, yeah, when I, I was, you know, looking at which movies I wanted to see and didn't want to see, this is one I, I really didn't hear about. So, you know, I unfortunately shafted, got shafted into my, uh, not on my list of ones I was trying to catch up with before this episode. So, but all the, all the way you're describing, it definitely makes me want to check it out. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. It's a great film. Awesome. Uh, well, do you have anything else you want to add about, or, do, or are we good to move on? I think we can move on, yeah. All right, so my number four movie is Wild Rose, directed by Tom Harper. Your Lordship, Miss Harlan has put her childish ways behind her. Her children are living with her once again. Mom! They miss me. She is a promising young country singer. I'm trying to get to Nashville. Well, you better mind your tad doesn't go off when you're going through security. She now works full-time as a daily woman. Uh, a troubled young Glasgowian woman dreams of becoming a Nashville country star. This is a movie that, uh, that stars Jessie Buckley, who it really was her, her big coming-out party. She looks to be, you know, 
the next big Hollywood star, you know, you're talking about, uh, you're watching um, some Charlie Kaufman movies. She was the lead in, uh, uh, I'm thinking of ending things, the Netflix movie earlier this year. And she's just got such a, a unique presence to her. But uh, yeah, here she is playing a young Scottish woman who, who wants to be a country and Western star as she uh, repeatedly corrects people who, who just call her a country singer or something like that. Uh, country and Western, which is, you know, a very specific subgenre of country music. Often we think of country music as, you know, talking about your, your pickup truck, your beers, your dog, and how your woman broke your heart, basically. And there's a little bit of that, but there's much more honesty and truth to the country and Western genre, much more related to the, the sort of uh, bad boy 1950s era, um, that sort of country music where there's just so much emotion to it, where you would almost relate it to the blues and that sort of style, where it's very simple in the, the chord progression. It's not complicated music. It's just beautiful, honest, heartfelt music. And Jesse Buckley plays this character named Rose Lynn, who is a down-on-her-luck woman who is you know desperately trying to make it as a country singer while also uh, is a mother of two and really, you know, she's getting out of prison and getting her mother to help her take care of her kids. She doesn't really have her life together, a whole bunch of stuff. But it's just the sort of movie where the lead performer's charisma absolutely carries you through the whole way. And when it's a movie about music, the music has to be top-notch as well. And whether or not you're a fan of the country and western sort of style, I, I do like that sort of classic country vibe. I, I am a fan of that, you know, the, the Johnny Cash era. Uh, and, and they absolutely nail it out of the park. And, and there's the, the theme song that plays a couple times through it. Just absolutely phenomenal. And when she does her end performance of it, it just, you know, absolutely knocks it out of the park and breaks your heart in half. And you're basically sobbing by the end of it. But it's just, it's just such a stunning one-woman performance where she really carries this whole movie and is able to, to take you on this big epic journey while still being very intimate at the same time uh was this one that you were able to catch up with uh it was it was one of the last you know films i squeezed in you know right before we record this and i i do agree with you on a lot of your points i do think it's definitely uh jesse's performance that really carries the film because in my in my opinion i don't really think the film is able to ever to reach her level i think her performance is fantastic it really makes the film memorable but the the main structure of the film it kind of follows a lot of those you know story beats we've seen before mm -hmm. and i do think that uh, i think that doesn't really help the film in many ways but it's kind of a hard film not to love because you're so committed to her character and you want to see her succeed even though she's not you know she's sometimes not the best mom or she's sometimes not the best friend to other people but she's trying so to see this this flawed individual, you know, just you know, trying to make it. You can't help but root for her. Mm -hmm. And I and I do really like how like they keep bringing it back, like the whole film where she has tattooed on her shoulder uh, three chords in the truth, mm -hmm. which you know is um, is an obvious reference to you know that's what country music is. And I think and what I really liked about that in particular is how a lot of cultures outside of the U.S., even if you've never been to the you know, U.S., you know, country music is one of those huge staples, you know, of American culture. And at least, for, you know, for me, you know, growing up in the U.S., 
it's it's one of those things where it's country music kind of brings hope and so for people that are you know outside of the u.s they kind of latch on to that because it's that idea like it's super simple like three chords on a guitar and just singing lyrics that are very heartfelt and you know they they bring so much of the human soul out and that's why this character is so driven to be a country singer and so yeah, I, I really love her performance, but the rest of the film really didn't stand out to me. And that's what's really kind of, um, that's why I wasn't able to put it on my list. But I do love it for a lot of the same reasons you do. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. I, I know when it came out, there were some people that were a little uh, hesitant about really getting on board with it. There's just a few moments that really work for me. There's there's a fun little moment when she's working as a housekeeper and she's vacuuming around the house and in her mind, she's singing along with, with the music that she's listening to and all of a sudden a backing band appears with it throughout the house and, and it's just like a really cool inventive way to showcase how her brain thinks and then of course every actual live performance whether she's in her local uh country bar that she's playing there uh there's a bit of a heartbreaking scene where she's playing at a party for the the house that she's working for they throw her a little party where she's the sort of uh, music guest of honor and uh and that doesn't really go very well but of course the, the the final sequence where she's actually made it and is is coming back home and, and performing that theme song it just is just so heartbreaking while also simultaneously being an incredibly powerful performance of a song yeah i couldn't agree more with that all right what's your number three movie uh, my number three pick is Palm, the 2020 film Palm Springs, directed by Max Bar, uh, Barba Cow. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You, what is going on? Hey, get out of the water, girl! Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about? Yeah. Uh, the synopsis reads, when Carrie Niles, reluctant maid honor Sarah, have a chance encounter at a Palm Springs wedding, things get complicated as they are unable to escape the venue themselves or each other. Now, I really loved this film. I Before I even watched it, I was a huge fan of Andy Sandberg. I've, uh, you know, I've kept up with his, you know, that, uh, his band, The Lonely Island. I think they're hilarious. Uh, his film, Pop Store, I thought was great. Him on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's a great show. I highly recommend that. And so I already loved his charisma out of the gate. And I, he brings it to this film once again, paired very nicely with his co-star, Kristen, um, I want to, Melody? Melody, yeah. Uh, Melody, thank you. Um, I thought they both gave a great dual performance. Their chemistry on screen was insanely, it was just perfect. It was one of those, when you when you see that chemistry in it, even if they, they were it was only like within the first couple minutes they were on screen. I was like, they're perfect together for this film. And it, it is, does it, it does definitely give like a lot of throwbacks to, uh, the film with Bill Murray. Oh, uh, Groundhog, Groundhog Day. Day. Yeah. Groundhog <laughs> Day. Exactly. So a lot. And so it obviously has like a lot of references to it, but I actually like this film a lot more than Groundhog Day. Cause I think it, they get the premise of what makes Groundhog Day really good. And they kind of expand on that. Mm-hmm. And I, and but they make it they make it funny but also tragic at the same time in just the right way. It's so entertaining watching them going to the different intervals. You know whether it be you know going to a bar and picking a fight with some you know bikers 
or like going in a plane and then like crashing the plane or something like that. Like those little moments in between where they're just screwing around and having the time of their lives is really funny. But then when you learn about the characters, you know, later on where they start, you know, delving into, you know, actual like they they love each other. You, I feel like both of the actors really sell that. Yeah. And I think it's a film that's, you know, it's, it's a really beautiful, intimate story at the end of the day. You know, even though there's a lot of comedy, I think people can come away with a lot from it. And another side note, too, is I love J.K. Simmons' supporting role. <laughs> I think he's an amazing kind of antagonist to Andy Sandberg. I, I guess I won't really uh, give away how he fits in, but just his role on the side as Roy, I think, is hilarious. And I love what they do with that. Yeah, J.K. kind of like shows up every once in a while. You kind of forget about his character and then he shows up for like five minutes, absolutely destroys the scenes he's in and then like goes off for like the next half hour. Every time he shows up, yeah, it's absolutely killer, which you'd expect nothing less from an actor of his caliber. But you're, you're totally right. I think for me is... I, I'm a big Andy Samberg fan too. I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I love Popstar. I loved his, you know, SNL days, things like that. You know, I feel like as time goes on, every project that Andy Samberg does, our perception of him changes ever so slightly. You know, coming out of uh, SNL in the Lonely Island phase, you know, he could have basically been Adam Sandler's son. I know he did play that in a, in a movie, uh, That's Your Boy or whatever it was, where we sort of expected this sort of frat boyish sort of style. But every time he does something, it slowly changes our perception of who he is as a performer. And I think it's really rounded out his career nicely. And I think it sort of culminates in this where we, you know, we go in and being like, great, it's the Andy Samberg show. But he has the ability to lay back a little bit and let his co-star, Kristen Malati, sort of take the forefront in a lot of the scenes, especially later on in the movie, and really sort of let her character develop and grow from there and really sort of steal the show in a lot of the scenes. And that's something that I wouldn't have expected. You know, if, if this movie had come out 10 years ago, I would not have expected something like this. But now, you know, at this point, I, I, I hope for something like this. And he delivers. He Just because he's in the background a little bit, that doesn't mean he's not worth paying attention to or he's not still giving an amazing performance. He's just able to support his co-stars in a way that a great performer has the ability to do. And I think that takes a lot of time and a lot of talent for someone that has such a personality that he does. Yeah, I fully agree. And honestly, I had such a great time with this. Like, I, I laughed. Like, I haven't laughed, like, in a movie in a long time. So just, like, watching it, it was such an enjoyable experience. And I think you're absolutely right. I think Andy Samberg continues you know, to prove what an excellent actor he is outside of just doing, you know, simple skits. I think he could even prove to be a great dramatic actor as well. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested in the future if possibly if he tried doing something that didn't rely so much on comedy, because I definitely see that side of him. I think it's, I think it'd be interesting in the next couple of years to kind of see where his career goes and what roles he chooses, because I think literally for him, the sky's the limit. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I compared him to Adam Sandberg sort of derogatory, derisively, I guess is the word I'm looking for here. Uh, mm -hmm. But also at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if he maybe has that sort of Adam Sandler gene in him where he can do something like Punch Drunk Love or Uncut Gems, where he really mm -hmm. can turn in that sort of uh, dramatic role that we didn't expect but blow our minds. Oh, 100%. I, you know, he could very well, next couple of years, who knows, A24 might make a film with him. <laughs> you know, I can, I can honestly see that, you know. So, 
I'm really excited for whatever he does next. Yeah. But uh, what, what was uh, your number three film? My number three is I, Tanya from 2017, directed by Craig Gillespie. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. I was the best figure skater in the world at one point in time. Competitive ice skater Tanya Harding rises amongst the ranks of U.S. figure skating competitions, but her future in the activity is thrown into doubt when her ex-husband intervenes. So, you know, you're obviously far too young. Even I'm a little bit too young. I kind of, you know, know the jokes. I, you know, you would see clips of it and TV shows or movies or online from late night talk show hosts where whatever, you know, the big story of the year was and, and, you know, the sort of Tanya Harding, that sort of stuff. I remember, you know, Jay Leno and David Letterman talking about it, but I obviously was too young as well because this was the early 90s. Um, so I didn't really know the Tanya Harding story. I just kind of know, oh, yeah, she uh, she got her, her husband or whatever to uh, put a hit out on her rival skater and blew out her knee, and now she's this disgraced figure skater. That's basically all I really knew. And... You know, I know some people sort of that grew up with it were really apprehensive of the sort of rehabbing of her image, especially because she really was sort of making the rounds. I think she was on either like Dancing with the Stars or, or some crap like that at the time, not to not around that same area. Uh, but this was like, you know, Margot Robbie became famous due to Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, she was basically just a pretty face in that. And, and this was really her showing that she's like, a serious fantastic actor you know it's it's funny it's dark it's serious it makes you emotional it's got a whole bunch of stuff and and it's just so innovative the way it's shot you know you you've got Allison Janney who as an older playing the character as an older woman the mother of Tanya Harding doing these like film tv interviews and she's got this like ridiculous little parakeet on her shoulder while she's like alternating between her oxygen mask and chain smoking at the same time and talking about how she raised her daughter in an abusive household and how she's proud of it and all this ridiculous stuff. And you're just like, what is going on? And of course, like in the end credits, they show the actual footage of these interviews, which, you know, brings us back to three identical strangers of sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. But Margot Robbie is just so magnetic in this. And she's surrounded by two fantastic male performers in Sebastian Stan, who most people know as, as Bucky Barnes from the Marvel movies, but Paul Walter Hauser, who is the real sort of standout in this as um, her her ex-husband's friend, who is Tanya Harding's head of security. Uh, just this ridiculous character where he talks about how he was you know, trained by the FBI, which he clearly wasn't, and he can't divulge inter information. He's got just the ridiculous deadpan this is the type of movie where just so hilarious to watch but also at the same time you know what's coming and the downfall is so swift and hard that you also can't help but feel bad i don't quite vindicate tanya harding from all of this but at the same time i definitely understand her story a lot better yeah um kind of kind of like what you brought up you know i obviously i'm way too young to remember any of that happened so like i had only heard stuff from my mom which i actually watched the film with and so she had a little bit more of an insight into what was going on because she was watching the news you know when this whole story was playing out 
and that helped a little bit. But yeah, I do feel like even I kind of came in very like unbiased in my opinion about her as a person, and I came out very feeling very um, a little bit mixed, you know, because there. But I think what the film does, I think what the film does really well is it doesn't really necessarily paint her as a hero or a villain somewhere in between, mm-hmm. which is which it mirrors what a lot of people are. You know, there's it's kind of the white hat black hat mentality. There's really no most people are kind of like in that gray in between. There's not necessarily a really good person and a really bad person. You know, we're, all of us by nature, we're a mixture of, uh, you know, of both. And, and I think that's what makes her just a really sympathetic character. And then something you also pointed out too, about how, you know, uh, you pointed out the Wolf of Wall Street. I really think after the Wolf of Wall Street um, kind of came out, we got a lot of these hyper-realism based on a true story so insane you couldn't believe it could actually happen kind of comedy film you know i i really got a lot of adam mckay vibes from this you know what he did like with the big short and vice Mm -hmm. kind of shot in a lot of these you know similar ways where there's a lot of fourth wall breaking there's a lot of absurd absurdist like wink wink satire commentary and it's a very interesting way to depict you know history you know obviously we've seen like revisionist history kind of like what Tarantino's done but this new kind of approach that I've seen a couple directors doing with these biopics is they're not just straightforward biopics they're trying to kind of change the situations by making them more dynamic by throwing in you know you know curveballs here and there you know and even though some of them are probably you know fictionalized for dramatic reasons I think it is an a, really effective way of storytelling because it's presenting characters sometimes not in the most realist depictions but i like the idea that a lot of the films where the main characters in they're portrayed through their own perspective so you know you keep there's that dual interview between tonya and her ex-husband where they're kind of Mm -hmm. explaining stuff from both of their perspectives she's like yeah he hit me and then he was like, "Yeah, I never hit her." And then you see them, and then and then you actually watch it, and they're 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 beating the crap out of each other. Yeah. And so there's that dynamic where it's played for humor, but obviously it also goes into play where there's that mentality. I think she keeps bringing up like, "Oh, it's not my fault," and I, I forgot who it was. I think it's her mom says, "You know, you're always blaming other people." You know, I I don't know if I got that wrong, but um. And so I really like how they played with that kind of that overarching theme that that's a big flaw in her character if she doesn't take responsibility. And I think that's what makes her like a very sympathetic character. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. There's a lot of unrelatable narrator aspects to this where all of them are are unrelatable narrators. Um, But yeah, moving on, what is your number two movie? My number two film is Possessor, which is a little bit of a new, it's probably the newest film at least I have on my list, is the 2020 film directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? today what do you mean the story is essentially about a girl named tasa vote an elite corporate assassin who uses brain implant technology to take control of other people's bodies to terminate high profile targets as she seeks as she sinks deeper into her latest assignment vote 
becomes trapped inside a mind that threatens to obliterate her. Uh, now, Brandon Cronenberg, the director of this, I believe he only has one other feature under his belt besides this film, but this is obviously his major stepping point. It premiered at Sundance earlier this year, got a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of positive acclaim for it. You know, he's obviously the son of David Cronenberg, you know, who is, you know, made a name for himself, kind of made a name for himself with these kind of, with these kind of body horror, body horror films. And so his son is obviously taking a lot of inspiration from his dad's work and kind of creating his own path. I've never seen any of his dad's films. I definitely want to, but just, you know, seeing this film, I was just on its own. If there was no other inspirations behind it, I think it's, in my opinion, it's like my favorite film of the year. Wow. I think it's really excellently done in the way it depicts, um, it, it's mixed, it, how it depicts violence. I saw this interview that I thought was really interesting with Brandon, where he was talking about, you know, the way he uses violence in the film. And he said, I think it's a lot more disturbing in more PG-13 films that are coming out. There's this craze, there's the hyper-violent rated R films, and then there's the PG-13 films. And he's like, you know, in your average superhero movie, there's a battle with the superheroes in the city, and they're like destroying buildings and stuff. He's like, there's thousands of people dying, you know. There's civilians getting hurt here and there and stuff like that, but it's kind of glossed over, you know. He's, and he said, I think that's a lot more disturbing that that uh, – glossed over violence in these big PG-13 films that can't show grotesque violence than films that actually depict violence, which I thought was a very, you know, interesting quote. And it's a really interesting critique, I guess, of how we see violence in films. I think, you know, kind of like how, uh, you know, we talked a little bit earlier uh, about uh, Nicholas Winding Refn and just how, like, how violence is depicted. And obviously there is a lot of strong violence in this film. But I think it's used very well. And, uh, uh, I think it's used like expertly in a lot of different shots. You know, the, the color palette of the film is a lot of red. There's a lot of red and orange tints. And that's kind of, uh, and there's, of course, there's a lot of scenes with blood in it. And I think what's really interesting about this film as well is it kind of, it kind of makes you starting, start to question a lot of ideas of are our thoughts our own, you know? Mm. And there's, I remember, I think a couple months ago, I think Elon Musk, he like he was saying how he he has like a brain implant chip idea that he has, <laughs> you know. So what's so terrifying about this film is the idea that like some of the stuff that's in the film, it's like we're maybe a couple years away from it. Some of this potentially, obviously, some of it, you know, it's it's used over dramatically. But I I think that's another terrifying aspect of the film is what if someone could you know, control your body without you being able to and essentially destroy your life over the span of a couple hours. And but what I really liked about this film in particular is not only about the actual victim, but the actual perpetrator, the um, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but the the um, the woman who's essentially the assassin is showing the psychological toll. I'm sorry, Andrea Riseborough. Oh, that's right. I, and I and she was also excellent a couple of years ago in Mandy mm. with uh, Nicolas Cage. And so I was really happy to see her in another film. But what I really loved about this film is it shows the strain that happens on her in her personal life because you're introduced, you first see one of her murders that she, one of her assassination attempts, and then you meet her husband and her uh, her child at, at her home. And you really see like, oh, she's is just kind of, you know, a mother and she is a hut and she is a, uh, and a wife and she's all these other things, but she, ha she has a secret other life where she's an assassin. 
And so you do, you do understand why she does what she does, but you also do feel bad for her, even though, because the people she's interacting, she's, you know, killing are sometimes do deserve it. And sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. But um, overall, I was really blown away by um, most of the film. I'm really interested to see what you think, because I think you said you saw this pretty recently before the recording, right? Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, this is the type of movie where I, I had it on, and, and I'm not great with horror, so I kind of had a second screen up where I was replying to some emails and stuff like that. And I'm watching, I'm just like, oh, this is interesting. It's okay. And then, like, after it finished, I'm just like, oh, there's some parts that really confuse me. But, like, every day, I think I watched it two or three days ago now, every day I've been thinking about it, I was like, wow, this uh, this movie's really weird, and, you know, it's kind of sitting with me weirdly, and, like, I'm thinking about it a lot. And I think that's, you know, basically the hallmark of a, of a well-made movie. If it sort of sticks with you and makes you think about it, is, is something you really want to have. And, you know, I think Brandon Cronenberg would, would absolutely take that as a compliment where I watched it and I'm like, I don't really know what to think about it, but I'm going to keep thinking about this. And, you know, I'm sure he probably enjoy hearing that more than just be like, oh, it was the best thing ever sort of thing, sort of gut reaction where I, I really think he wants you to sit with this and feel uncomfortable with it. You know, the, the violence is is really disturbing at times you know we talked you you talked about the the, the first early uh, assassination it was done by stabbing with like a short knife and repeatedly over and over again they, they replay this murder of like a knife going in a throat and blood coming out and it's done in like a slow fashion and you like see the knife slowly coming out of the neck and it just like sort of turns your stomach in a way of like, this is clearly fake. I know it's fake and, you know, it seems excessive. I've never seen someone being stabbed, so I can't really compare it. But like, as far as movie standards go, this is fake because it's so realistic and it just sort of sticks with you and you're just like, oh, why? What is, what's the importance of it? Why is this happening? And all this sort of stuff. And so I, I think the fact that it sticks with you is probably a good thing. You know, off the top of my head, you know, after I finish it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this would probably be near the bottom of, of neon films. But the more I think of it, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Maybe it moves up one notch. And, you know, maybe it moves up another one notch. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, it's not so bad of a movie. Uh, but I think, you know, you talked about Andrea Riseborough's performance. I think it also, you need a the super strong counterpoint in, in Christopher Abbott's performance. The two of them, because she takes over his body for most of the movie. And there's actually sequences where they're talking at the same time. You know, you see his mouth moving and you hear both of their voices, like one on top of the other. So you've got his, which is a very deep voice and hers, which is a bit of a higher voice going over top of each other, saying at the exact same time. And it's, it's just one of those, you know, real mindfuck movies where you, you you're going to think about this one for days. You're going to, you know, wake up from your sleep and be like, Oh man, I had a dream about how their faces were splitting apart and, you know, they were sticking to each other and he's pulling her face mask over him and stretching the eyeballs and just like, oh, there's, there's just so much going on. And I think that the thing that I love the most about this movie is all the effects were practical. They shot this in camera. None of this was CGI. So, you know, there's a bit of a sequence where there's a, a, a little particle that's vibrating between uh, his two fingers that's a piece of styrofoam that they vibrate it using sound waves. They, they crank the decibels up to a level that would vibrate material. 
and they managed to insert uh, sound waves into a running fountain so it looks like the fountain was frozen and and just all the different things going on behind the scenes that you think are like you know just subtly off just just a little bit off those were all done so specifically and so deliberately that that's the hallmark of a fantastic director that is so in charge of his craft no, I fully agree with what you're saying, and I had no idea about the practical effects, and I think that definitely makes me appreciate the film even more. And I think another thing about it is it's definitely a very pulpy, kind of sort of sci-fi horror film, and it's definitely kind of a thrower back to a lot of older films, which I think is really interesting. And I do really see this as a jumpstart for um, Brandon as a director and his, you know, his career. You know, I'm, I'm sure, because uh, he, he talked about you know, it took him years to write this, you know, to get funding and financing and distribution. And so it's really exciting that, you know, his voice is being able to be heard because he definitely has something to say. And he definitely has unique, interesting ideas at play. And, you know, like you mentioned, I love the cast. I love, um, you know, Christopher's performance as well when you were talking about how, you know, when they're both speaking at the same time. It's very off-putting, but it takes a lot of it, a lot of it. I can't talk. It takes a lot out of an actor to pull something like that off and have that range. And you're right. It's one of those films where it's like there's always something a little bit off. And I and I, that's what I really appreciated is I was thinking about it for days after. And I think that's just an interesting point about what the whole cinema is. It's one of those things is, you know, how when is a film good and when does it become great? Is it great because you remember a couple scenes or is it? that were like, you know, really like, oh, that was a cool scene. And there was like blood and stuff. Or was it interesting because, you know, something resonated like with you? Like, did it plant like a seed in your own mind? Like, like it, did it tap into like some of your own fears that you have about like your own identity? And yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting ideas at play. And I'm really excited to see what he does next. Yeah, I, I wrote in my letterbox review, if this movie was, you know, the exact movie it is, but if it was directed by Ari Aster, it would be the biggest movie of the year. Right, a hundred percent, dude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you have it on the money because because I it's sort of similar stylistically to to Midsummer and uh, and Hereditary, where it's a very visceral horror experience that taps into something psychological, and so the two of them would be would be compared should be compared favorably to each other. And if it was if this had Ari Aster's name in front of it, A twenty four, I think it would be you know the biggest indie hit of the year. That's another interesting. Uh, point you make too as well as uh about because this film is distributed by neon and not a24 and if a24 because it could it's one of those films where it would fall in line what a24 has been making mm -hmm. in recent years so that's another interesting idea of where distribution companies are now they're more than distribution companies you know if it's on a trailer now people are already sold on it before they've even seen it's like oh it's by a24 like oh it's by neon like oh I, i've seen a couple films by this distribution company and they're great i definitely want to check it out so i, I definitely see we're getting out where now it's becoming it's a brand thing now yeah and th that's a really interesting approach to that's the direction i guess films are going in where you know these companies are you know picking up these up-and-coming directors and seeing what they have but um yeah no i totally love your point you made about ari aster um but uh yeah no o overall i really like this film and yeah. I think the it's last great. thing I'm going to point out is 
you know, in our A24 episode, we talked about the movie Enemy, the Denis Villeneuve one. And much like this, it's shot in Toronto. I don't know if you, if you knew that when you were watching it, but it's hilarious. Where you know, I realized early on the first murder sequence. She's going up an elevator, and they're showing you know the city skyline as they're going up the elevator, and that's uh, Scotiabank Arena, where where the Leafs and the Raptors play in Toronto. And so of course I'm like, hey, it's Scotiabank Arena. But then later on, I can't remember the name of the the company that he works for. It's like Zootros or something like that. That is the uh, CBC head office, which is our national broadcaster. I've been in there several times for, for different reasons. I, I've gone in for auditions there. I've gone in to watch concerts there and filming, stuff like that. But just hilarious where I've been like in the exact locations that they are where I'm like, I this is the CBC head office, <laughs> which like as a Canadian filmmaker, come on, you cannot do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's hilarious. Honestly, I didn't even notice that. But they did, they did a good job of not showing the CN Tower. Where unlike Enemy, which was very explicitly taking place in Toronto, uh, this was more subtle. Where like obviously, as someone in California, you wouldn't recognize. But like me being in Toronto, like I recognize the streets. I recognize the the skyscrapers. That sort of stuff. That's awesome. I love that. All right. uh, So I'm going to move on to my number two movie. Now, I had such a tough time. My number one and number two are almost tied with each other, and I I almost feel guilty putting this at number two. But for me, it is Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019, directed by Celine Sciamma. And it's about uh, how on an isolated island in Brittany, at the end of the 18th century, a female painter is obligated to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman. I had watched this when it came out, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. And then I rewatched it in preparation for this show, and it just sort of cemented my love for it. It is just so delicate and beautiful. And and I don't know what it is, but for some reason, anytime there's a movie about art, I don't know if it's just me noticing it, but for some reason, I feel like the director and the cinematographer make sure that every shot looks like a painting everything is so beautiful to look at the color is perfect the setting is perfect the framing is perfect the the way the actors are positioned are perfect everything about it you 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 sense this great deal of art being involved in it and so i don't know if it's just because you know they're talking about painting and they're showing painting and so i'm connecting the dots or if it's you know they take extra special effect because you know you're going to be compared to it but at the end of the day you know this is this is a uh, a love story between two people who can't be in love because they're women, because of the time period they're in, because of the obligations they feel, all this sort of stuff. But but literally every single shot and, and scene is just a feast of beauty of what's going on and the longingness in their eyes mm-hmm. and the way that you can tell that they're feeling with, with subtle glances and flinches and, and the way they blink their eyes, everything you can feel in it. And of course, there's there's a couple really key integral parts. This movie has almost no music throughout. There's there's two big important scenes with music. The first one, they're at this sort of bonfire feast of all women going on, and and all the women in the in the island start doing this chant, and it's just so overwhelmingly beautiful. And then at the end, at the opera, when uh, one of the characters is watching the other watch opera, and this swell of music, and it's the same sort of feeling but instead you're feeling sadness and regret instead of love and hopefulness and and it's just one of those things where there's just so much going on and i love it that the fact that almost the whole movie there's no men in this and then like almost towards the end like past the three-quarter mark 
a guy shows up and it's just like, whoa, what are you doing here, buddy? You need to get out of here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear what you think of this one. If you, had you seen this one? Yes, I have. And if not for my number one pick, I definitely would have replaced it with this oh. because I do love this film so much. And I had ne- I hadn't seen the trailer for it. I just I had seen the poster. You know, I all the reviews that came in were ra- like raving about it, and I was like, I have to check this out. And so it's been a couple months, so it's not as fresh in my mind. But I like what you said. It's literally it feels like a living painting. Like every single shot is so gorgeous. In particular, I love all the shots down at the beach, like down at the beach. Yeah. Where they're, you know, even where they're positioned, you know, as opposed to the camera, there are these little tiny figures, you know, in this, in these large landscape portraits, if you will, that it looks like. And I, just the skill involved with every single shot, it was just so beautiful. Like I was literally, it was one of those films, you know, where I, I gasped sometimes. I was yes. just like, wow, I was so taken aback by just like the, like the sheer beauty I, like on display because I, you know, I hadn't seen a film like that before. Um, another thing that I love too is the, um, I don't even remember what the, the actress's names were, but the dual performance that they had is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two French, two French actresses, but, um, they play off each other so well. And what I love most about the film is how, um, through most of the beginning, they don't actually, they don't talk very much. It's mostly just glances and there's a lot of shots of the eyes. And that's what I love about this because, you know, like how the eyes are really the gateway to the soul. And you can really feel that in this film. You can, like you were talking about, there's that sense of longing and loneliness you can see in their eyes when they're just, you know, staring at each other and then like looking away and staring and looking away. And you can feel that because, you know, normally, you know, if they were talking and stuff and they were just like saying things to each other, you wouldn't notice it as much. But just that nonverbal communication of just music and then just, uh, you know, no dialogue whatsoever, just them looking, it just elevates it. It's so much more powerful. And I was so on edge with the film, even in like the last, you know, five minutes, you know, I was like, I, I wasn't actually breathing the last couple minutes. <laughs> like I literally, I literally like when, when it like, when the credits finally hit, I was like, wait, was I not breathing? <laughs> because I was like, I, I, I had to suck in some air because, and I didn't even realize it yeah. because I was so, I was immediately entranced in this world because it it was dripping with beauty, but I could really feel for the characters. You know, I I could really understand what they were going through in a way. And this film, it's beautiful. There's, there's no other way of describing it. I I love it. I think it's, it's incredible. Yeah. You're talking about gasping. And so I watched the, the first one. I, you know, rushing to cram it in for, for last year's end of the year list. And, uh, and I rewatched and my wife hadn't seen it. And so we watched it together because she had, she had missed it. I watched it while she was out or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's there's a couple moments in particular where the first time you see it where um, um, uh, Marianne is, like, walking through the house late at night and she turns around and she sees Heloise just completely in the dark, but she's wearing this like floor length white dress and she's like completely bright light spotlight directly on her. And she looks like a ghost and you see it for a few seconds. And soon as you see it, it like it, like she literally appears like a ghost for a few seconds and then leaves. And my wife was like, Whoa, 
like literally audibly like that or like i think that's the absolute like highest praise or hallmark that you could do something for a movie where if, if it literally startles you to make an audible gasp like that and and they do it i think two or three times in the movie you see it and every time it's so striking because the frame is so dark so pitch black and then she shows up as this like white light just like literally like an angel and later on we learn that it's basically um a made-up memory she has of her uh, the way she she's dressing in her final dress and that sort of thing, and that's the way uh, Marianne chooses to remember her as and and basically as an artist. And but you see that the first time, and it almost kind of hits you like a horror movie where you're like, "Is this real? Is this not real? What's going on?" It's just it's just so striking that you can't help but like gasp at it. And I'm assuming that's what you were talking about when you were saying you were gasping in the movie. Yeah, it was definitely one of those times. It was just. It's one of those films that just entrances you, it latches onto you, and it doesn't let go. Yeah. And I, I really want to rewatch it just, just for the sheer, you know, beauty, beauty of it. You know, it's just, it's great. It's it's definitely better on a rewatch because you don't need to focus on the plot. You can actually focus sort of on their like micro emotions. Hmm. All right. What's your number one movie, Royce? My number one pick is uh, a film you might have heard of it possibly it, it kind of won best picture this year and a bunch of other Oscars, but it's uh, parasite, the 2019 film directed by Bong Joon Ho. Uh, the, the story, the story centers around an, an all unemployed, uh, key take family. I probably butchered that takes pe- peculiar interest in the wealthy and gla- glamorous parks family for their lively, um, until they get, until they get wrapped and entangled in an unexpected incident. So I'm assuming that everyone that's probably li- you know listening to this, a lot of people have seen Parasite at this point. And for people who have, m- most people are are probably were probably floored by it. I was I was completely riveted the first time. So there was actually the first time I actually saw this, I got to see it in this theater. There was it wasn't nearby me. I had to drive a little bit of ways away, but I went with a couple friends. And it was this. It was in a Korean neighborhood. It was this really cool um, movie theater, kind of, kind of hidden, kind of tucked back. But when I, but when me and my friend went in, we were literally the only white guys in there. <laughs> literally the everyone in there. It because it was it was like in Koreatown, and so it was right when it, it had come out. So I hadn't heard much about it. I just had heard really good things, and it was a fantastic experience being in there with a fresh audience every seat was filled and i haven't had and i, I really miss that especially with the whole pandemic i miss being in a yeah. crowded taxi and they're like oh but it was a fantastic experience uh just seeing it up on the big screen big screen and it's just one of those films i genuinely believe it that don't come too often and a lot of you know even on letterbox it you know it's, it's got a four four point six rating it's like the highest rating ever on there it's got in the reviews, you know, by critics and audiences are obviously everyone really enjoys the film. And a lot of things that have been, that can be said about this film have probably been said. So I'm just probably repeating what I've already heard, but I do really genuinely enjoy this film. And it, I think, I think the reason why is because it just feels like such a landmark. I, there's this idea that I think every couple of years, there's always like a film that, defines that particular decade um a lot of uh 
you know, especially with the 2010s coming to a close, a lot of people were talking about like, oh, what film sums up the decade? A lot of people pointed to, you know, the social network, you know, being a defining film for that decade, you know, with the introduction of social media, you know, and Facebook and how that's been so, so much more relevant today. It's the films that really encompass what's going on in just society as a whole, like what's going on around the world. And I think what Parasite pulls off so well, it's an immaculate film, first off. Like, on a technical acting level, everything is pitch perfect. But what Bong Joon-ho, I believe, does an amazing job at is differentiating the idea of class and what does it mean to be of a different class. You know, obviously in the film, there's the poor family and there's the rich family they're serving and that manipulation that takes place. And there's a lot of different thematic elements that are at play, you know, a lot of different symbolism about what, what is the parasite, who is feeding off who. And there's a lot, there's some of it's metaphorical as one, I think the son points out, this is so metaphorical. Uh, but there's so, there's so, there's a lot of metaphor at play. Some of it actually is just symbolism and a lot of it actually becomes literal symbolism later on in the film as you, there's a lot of plot twists where things just crank up to 11. But I think just the whole film is streamlined brilliant. I love it so much. I actually uh, got the Blu-ray copy of it on Criterion that I've been waiting for. So I'm really stoked about that. I'm glad to have a personal copy because it just feels like one of those films that doesn't come around too often. And I absolutely, as you can probably tell at this point, I adore this film. <laughs> I think it's honestly one of the best films to come out in years. I'm so glad I was able to catch it in theaters. And... I'm really happy it swept the Oscars. I think it genuinely did deserve every Oscar it got nominated for. And I know there was a lot of controversy around it, but it's really encouraging to see, uh, even though it was a film made by an esteemed filmmaker like Bong Joon-ho, you know, we've made a couple films in the past that have, you know, received a lot of praise. I think why a lot of people love this film is it's, it's, it's a story that we can all latch onto, no matter if you're lower, middle, or upper class. Everyone understands a certain character in the story it's one of those it's a very universal tale of a, a lot of things you know it's a lot of like you know human wants and needs you know where do we exist compared to other people you know what will what will we do to get ourselves and other people a much better life and i really do think this is going to be a film that we're going to be talking about you know decades from now we're going to be teaching about it in film school you know, we're going to be teaching that in philosophy classes. It's just one of those films where you watch. I remember the, the first time I saw it, I knew, like, this is going to be a defining film. And it's, well, it's so great about it, too. It has such rewatchability. It's such an enjoyable film. It just flies by. It's one of those films where I can easily see, you know, watching it, you know, at least once a year. But it's definitely, it's, it's funny. It's, you know, serious, sometimes really terrifying. And it just encompasses, you know, everything I really want out of the film. I am so glad you you put this on your list and, and specifically so high, just because I like it. I, I I just don't love it as much as everyone else is loving it. If I, if I was to look on my list uh, right now, I think I have it listed as maybe eight or nine for my my neon films. So I'm so happy that you have it so high because I know I'm gonna get tons of hate for this. I like it. I like it. You will. <laughs> I know. I, I like it. I like it a lot. I just don't love it. Uh, I, I appreciate everything about it, and I think you hit on so many great points. 
Uh, it's just, for some reason, it just doesn't connect with me. And, you know, I'm not going to spend a whole time, a lot of time belaboring that point because I think you are so articulate in explaining why you like it and why you, why so many people do love it and connect with it. So I'm not going to take any of that away and be, you know, the Debbie Downer about this. Uh, but yeah, I <laughs> thank you for having that as your number one movie because, you know, any any traction this podcast was making, uh, people will be like, screw this guy. He doesn't know anything about movies. He doesn't even <laughs> want to talk about Parasite. <laughs> I know. Everyone that was listening to this, when they heard Parasite, they were just like, yes, somebody did it. Yeah. And so, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I'm going to go with my number one movie because I, I don't want to trash Parasite. It is a good movie. It's just not on my list. Uh, my number one is Apollo 11, directed by Todd Douglas Miller. The whole Apollo program was designed to get two Americans to the lunar surface and back again to Earth safely. The enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge. Apollo 11 is very simply been given the mission of carrying men to the moon, landing them there, and bringing them safely back. A look at the Apollo 11 mission to land on the moon, led by Commander Neil Armstrong and pilots Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. You know, this was a movie that, you know, you, you just sort of hear that description, you hear the title, whatever. You have you think you've seen this movie before. You you know, there's been a million space landing moon documentaries, that sort of thing. Uh, First Man came out with Ryan Gosling, I think, like two years ago. We've all seen the story. This is completely different. This is a documentary that is using, of the time footage, 70 millimeter unseen footage that people have not seen before, that... They were able to take alternate takes from from news footage, different cameras that didn't make it into the final broadcast, the actual footage shot by Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin on the spaceship. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. There are no talking heads. There are no interviews. There are entire chunks of the movie where there is no dialogue. Anytime you get dialogue, it's because it is a news camera either literally interviewing someone or picking up the background noise because there'll be like cameras set up in the the command station, in 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 the space shuttle uh, at uh, Cape Canaveral, I believe it was at in Florida, where they they just have the camera set up, and so you get to hear all the different people being like, "Oh yeah, you good to go, you good to go. All right, let's let's track where you're at. All right, this is what your fuel is. All this sort of stuff." Uh, the fact that they're able to do away with with any of this sort of traditional documentary tropes and have a movie that is so exciting and edge of your seat and gorgeous to look at is just an absolute testament from the footage that they were able to gather and put together and how captivating it all is. Like this, this is a movie that I kick myself. I had a friend text me and be like, hey, this movie is playing on an IMAX screen, one of like the few special super IMAX mega theaters that we have here in the city. You know, like every every city has a couple IMAX screens, but like there's a couple like, you know, you go for like the super special screening. And I kick myself that I missed the opportunity to go and watch this with him. I don't know if my friend, my friend Scott Murdoch went and actually saw it in this screen, but I know he had messaged our friend group and was like, hey, we should go ahead and see this. And I didn't go, and I'm kicking myself for watching this on my stupid home TV. This movie needs to be seen on the biggest screen, the loudest speakers you can get. Well, hey, man, at least you got to do it on a 
TV because I watched it on my laptop. Oh, so. Royce, you break my know, heart. I know, I know, I know, the horror. No, I would, no, I, dude, I'd be kicking myself too because I would 100% watch this on a 70 millimeter, you know, IMAX screen because, you know, I think you did a really good, great job of explaining it. Like, even though it didn't go on my list, um, I, I was able to catch, I was able to watch it last week and I was still riveted by it just as much as you were, just how it was, you know, how it was edited together just so well. It felt like it's like an action, like movie. a Yeah, it literally, yeah, it literally feels like it. It feels like it's happening in real time. How it, it, it doesn't even feel like a documentary. Like you said, like no talking heads or anything like that. It was just, just there was some, you know, voiceover of, you know, the different, you know, people that were like commentating on what was happening. But it does really give a lot more levity to the actual moon landing and what actually, you know, to, took place and how monumentous of an event it was, not only for the U.S., but for the world. It was a huge cultural upheaval, you know, a man literally stepping on a piece of rock thousands of miles in space. And it really, I, and that, that's what I, I'm sure you could probably agree with this, too. I think it gives a lot more. Um, brevity even to you know kennedy's famous speech mm. at the very end yeah. you know talking about why we choose to go to the moon and it really you know i welled up with a lot of emotion at the end of it because you really saw how it literally took years and years to get to that point and what a moment it was for all of humanity you know to show like we could shoot for the stars we could do this do all these things and i think it's a film that should be shown in classrooms i think you know, you know, why are we watching like Apollo, like all these other like documentaries or like these like film dramatizations? Like this is the definitive. You know, if you know, if we could archive what happened, you know, and the whole process of the moon landing, this film would be it. Yeah, yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. That that's so accurate. It, it just it just sort of blows your mind. You watch some of the shots, some of the sequences where you're like, no, this can't be real. This has to be CGI. This has to be a recreation on, you know, maybe a, a, a space mission uh, from a few years ago, a rocket launch from that. No, this is like they got the cameras right up to the boosters as they're, you know, blowing up off the ground, going into the air. And you and you watch it in the high definition that they were able to capture it. And it just sort of blows your mind. And you just have to be so thankful that they had the the crew that was there to shoot this because imagine if this stuff was just lost to history that we only had the the grainy black and white news footage from you know ABC News or NBC or whatever it was and that's all we had that's what we were stuck with or the the limited feed that we could get of you know when they were calling to talk to the president that's the only thing that they released no the fact that we have their actual comms communications and the actual on camera footage like this is this is monumental historical stuff where you know history books are written but maybe we can have digital history books and this is a digital history book mm -hmm. no i think you, i think that was really well said and yeah, this is a whole like this is it's a, it blows my mind as well that we have all this footage from back then because mm -hmm. like you said it would be so sad if you know we only had like the gr like grainy you know f you know footage of all the events that took place and um, yeah it's definitely it 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 definitely it it builds on what you've already learned like in school and it kind of elevates that and I hope 
there's this process is done with a lot of other world events because like you said you know you know instead of having just you know textbooks you know we have these as these kind of films as a way to kind of archive our history you know for future generations to really see you know these huge events in human history as kind of these um i'm blanking on the word oh like like these time capsules if Mm -hmm. you will of these of these moments because that's essentially what this film is it's a time capsule and um yeah even though it didn't make my uh top five list i still really enjoyed this film and i love to see it on the big screen one day yeah me too we're gonna take a short break and when we get back i actually posted a survey asking people what they thought about neon and i'm going to reveal the results why climb the highest mountain why 35 years ago fly the atlantic why does rice play texas we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. All right, so as I teased before, I I posted a little survey on on Reddit and Twitter and got uh, a lot of responses. I got 112 people that responded to this neon survey. I'm gonna read out some of the responses. So I asked, how many neon movies have you seen? And I broke it up into quarters. So under 10, 10 to 19, 20 to 29, and 30 to 37. With this company that kind of has smaller releases, it wasn't really shocking, but 72 people said under 10, with the next closest answer being uh, 32 people saying 10 to 19. I fall in that second category. Uh, I believe you're probably right on the border. Is that is that accurate? I'm not sure. I, want, I think... I think I might be, I think I'm definitely under 10. Okay. I don't think I'm anything higher than that. No. Yeah, so it isn't, it isn't super surprising. They haven't had uh, as many, I, I would say, box office hits as even, even A24 doesn't have as many box offices, but they're definitely more, uh, more renowned and have bigger audiences. Uh, so it doesn't really shock me that more people have not seen neon films. Uh, now I asked... A sort of a two-prong question. First, what was your favorite Neon release? And then I asked uh, for your two follow-up movies of what would be your second and third because I asked if I was to just say what was your favorite Neon release, I was pretty safe to assume what the answer would be. And it was Parasite. Overwhelmingly, 66 people said that was their favorite Neon movie with Portrait of a Lady on Fire being second at 27, followed very far behind, I, Tanya at six, Palm Springs at three, Apollo 11, Honeyland, and Ingrid Goes West all at two. So there is absolutely no shock there. And then what was interesting is I sort of just sort of tallied up what the the runner-up would be. So between Parasite being the number one favorite and then the runners-up position, a total of, uh, what is this, 102 out of 112 people ranked Parasite in their top three. So absolutely no shock from there. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire, just as prolific. Between the top three slots, it had 78 out of 112 responses. I mean, there's no shock there. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, I guess that just kind of goes to show 
the longevity of it, some of these films. But um, yeah, I'm you know hopefully Neon becomes a studio like A24, or like it's definitely on its way to become one of those distribution companies that can hopefully you know help make a lot of great hopefully future classics. Yeah. And so yeah, they're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Other responses included. I'll, I'll sort of go in order there. Uh, Palm Springs, Itania, Ingrid Goes West, Honeyland. Three Identical Strangers, Apollo 11, Possessor, Vox Lux, Colossal, Monos, Loose, and sort of just goes on from there where you're just getting only one or two votes for them. But uh, in total, a whole bunch of movies ended up getting getting a, a nod there, so I'm happy that there was a bit of a diversity there. I'm glad I didn't just say, what was your favorite neon film? Because it really just would have ended up being Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I, I was curious to hear what else other people thought. Um, and then I also, you know, I left an optional spot of people to add any final comments they had of what their general thoughts of neon were. And there's a couple that I highlighted here and that, uh, people were saying things like creative movies, especially compared to other companies, everything I've seen has been consistently good. And then sort of to what you were saying, I think neon is more accessible company compared to a 24, all neon distributed films feel different to each other. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to get something uh, a little more uh, tepid, it's an all right build. They definitely need to get more films, but they're very small right now, so I don't think it's worth comparing to other companies. And uh, the fact that Neon put out arguably the two best movies of the decade last year, Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it makes me very excited to see what they'll do in the future. It makes me happy to see them distribute foreign films to such a wide audience. A lot of the comments definitely sort of went back to this idea of comparing them to A24 as basically being a light form for them, uh, which you had kind of mentioned a couple times. And so, yeah, I, I'm not really shocked by the sort of comments I was receiving. No, I'm not really shocked either. And yeah, you know, I do agree with a lot of what people were saying. Like, you know, they are a relatively new um, company. And yeah, I, that, that, I, I yeah, I feel like, yeah, A24, one of the only flaws there is, you know, some films do really feel kind of similar to each other. You know, it's like becoming, there's certain cliches. And so far, you know, I haven't seen too many Neon yet, films yet. But they're definitely, they, ha- they have their own, they obviously have their own interests in the films they're making. But it's all very exciting, I think, in the long run. I think we're going to see a lot more interesting films coming out in the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm very excited to see what they've got coming up. Uh, and the last comment I'll, I'll read is from Callum McNabb, who's a friend of the show from Scare Traducing. He's been on here a couple times. I asked him what his favorite shows were, uh, his favorite neon movies, and, and his was Assassination Assassination Nation and Parasite are the two I watch the most. Very excited for Possessor and still haven't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, so need to get around to that ASAP. So he definitely sort of agrees with with your line of thinking of both Assassination Nation and Parasite. So uh, you've got, you've got a, a fan in that corner. Yes. <laughs> well, Royce, it was excellent having you on again. Uh, I am so happy to, to bring you back. This is uh, two shows we've kind of had similarly. I'm going to link them in the show notes for people to check out. Uh, and, and I definitely will be having you on in the future. I know we were originally planning around this time to be talking about Denis Villeneuve and, and sort of ranking his films in preparation for Dune, which was supposed to come out early December or something like that. And that's obviously been pushed back a year, and you're still going to do that next year, but uh, but we definitely are going to have you have you back sooner than that. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, thank you. And then, yeah, thanks again for the opportunity to be back on here. I had a great time. Awesome. So glad to hear that. Once again, thank you to Royce for coming on the show. Make sure you check out the other two episodes that he was on, the ranking of A24 films and Life During Quarantine. They will be linked in the show notes, and we'll be sure to have Royce back on the show in due time. Another thing I want to mention is I was just a guest on Please Watch This. I was a guest of theirs previously as we discussed The Life Aquatic, one of my all-time favorite movies. But I was just on to talk about Before Sunrise, the Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy movie. And this is episode 70. It just came out. So make sure you check out Please Watch This. I join host Sam and Hugh, two hilarious and very knowledgeable movie fans we always have a great time when we when we chat uh their show is definitely worth a listen it's it's a unique show movie podcast uh where they're doing some stuff that uh isn't like anything else going on so so please make sure you check that out there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well and in exciting news sam and hugh will be joining the contrazoom pod for an episode uh in a few weeks as we tackle a make remake I'm not going to spoil too much here, but if you listen to their show, uh, I talk all about what they'll be they'll be coming on to do. So so please make sure you do that. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to having them finally come on ContraZoom Pod. That's the end of the show. Uh, what is your favorite neon movie? Send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com, and, and I'll read it on a future episode. You can also follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. And if you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be a huge help for us growing and finding new listeners. Thanks for listening.